All right, so go ahead and open up to First Peter. Um, we're almost done with this thing. It, I don't know about you, but for me, it seems like these books just come and go way too fast. Um, I've told you several times, First Peter is one of my favorites. Um, knowing Peter and his story throughout the Gospels, and then to see the the way God used him through Acts, and then him writing kind of pastorally to his people, it does a lot for my soul. Um, and and honestly, I'll probably have to say next week is going to be a fun one for me. I, I love First Peter 5, um, but we're not there yet. Today we finish up First Peter 4, um, and I want to go ahead and prepare you to go ahead and start thinking about what we're going to be doing during the Advent season. Uh, we're going to be working through the book of Zephaniah. It's probably a book you're not as familiar with, um, probably haven't read it much. Um, so spend some time reading through it uh, for the next couple of weeks and familiarize yourself. Uh, we're going to cover pretty big chunks of it. Um, but during the Advent season, as we long for for us, the return of Christ, I think you'll see a lot of um, challenge and a lot of hope in the book of Zephaniah. So go ahead and be preparing for that. This morning, as we finish up 1 Peter 4, we're going to be looking at the issue of how to suffer. And I want to pray for us before we begin. Um, there's going to be a lot of weight in this one. A lot of heaviness, so I want us to to just pray together. Father, what a blessing it is to have your word before us. And an even greater blessing that you allow us to work through it. To read line by line of... the beautiful work of redemption, the graciousness of Christ. And God, there are just some days where you come to portions of the word where it just hits heavy. Today could be one of those. But we can rejoice in knowing that your word is sufficient for all. That no matter what we're going through, no matter what part of life we are in, no matter what our story, your word is sufficient. And we thank you for that. And so we ask that our hearts are ready to hear from you through the reading and the preaching of the word. We ask that you would work through your Holy Spirit to speak to us and to awaken us to the truths of who you are and who we are in you. God, we pray that we would find comfort and rest in you today through your word. God, for some of us, we need to find salvation today in Jesus. So would you bring that need, the awareness of that need to the hearts of those who don't know you today? God, more than anything, would you make much of yourself during this time? Glorify yourself through the reading of the word. Honor your name through the preaching of your word. And work in and through the hearts of your people by way of your word. It's in Christ's gracious name we pray. Amen. You know, it is quite common for us to question God during the storms of life. That's not a new thing at all. That's something that has happened from the time sin entered into this world. 
we always want to question the ways of God. We want to question the mind of God. We want to question the goodness of God. We want to question the sovereignty of God. We want to question the love of God. We, we want to question all of these things because ultimately we want to be God. And we think in our minds that we know better than God. And so when things don't go quite like we plan or we want them to go, we question Him. And at the end of the day, there are many reasons, and, and you hear us constantly talk about needing to be in the Word. There are many reasons for us to diligently study the things of God. And none of the least of these is simply to know Him more. You've heard it for the last several weeks, and, and on Sunday and Wednesday as well, that at the end of the day, our goal should not be knowledge, it should not be peace, it should not be comfort, it should not be any of these things. Our goal is to know God. Our goal is to see and to hear from Him. And all of the other things begin to take care of themselves. And for us, the gift of God's Word is truly a gift to hear from Him, to study Him, to know the ways and the things of God as best we can, as, as much as God through His Spirit allows us to know them. Of course, we're not going to know it all because we are not God. And, and the Scripture clearly tells us that His ways are not our ways. Higher are His thoughts above ours. We can't know all things, but, but our desire should be to study and to know God. And as we study God's word, what we will come to realize probably pretty quickly is that what is popular amongst Christian circles, the message that is popularly proclaimed and adhered to is not necessarily the biblical message of Christ. Because much of what we hear is that we should follow Jesus and receive prosperity or that we should follow Jesus and receive ease, that we should follow Jesus and ultimately it be a cakewalk, but that's not the gospel at all. In fact, Jesus tells us that if we are to follow Him, we are first to deny ourselves, which goes against popular thinking, because popular thinking is all about building ourselves up, caring for ourselves, loving ourselves, but the gospel says deny yourself. And then he goes another step and he says, take up your cross daily. So again, a work, a hard load, a heavy burden to carry and follow me. And so the popular message of the gospel completely is really the antithesis of the true message of the gospel. It's not about ease and it's not about prosperity and it's not about all of these other pithy things. So it's actually about knowing God. And being known by Him. And when we know Him, we pursue Him and we follow Him. And just as a quick reminder, we know that Peter is writing to Christians who are enduring great suffering. And so we begin to ask the question, how then as God's people are we to suffer in a way that glorifies Him? Right. First Corinthians 10 says that whatever you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. All of life is to be done for the glory of God, even the hard parts, even the suffering. So how do we glorify God in suffering? And notice I'm saying how as God's people. Now, there are some of us here today who have never received salvation in Christ. We've never surrendered ourselves to him. You're going to endure suffering just as a Christian will, but there's a big difference. We have hope in suffering that you have not known yet. And so my hope is by the end of the day that when you hear of the hope that we have in Christ, that God through His Holy Spirit breaks your heart to want to trust Him. So the question again, how as God's people are we to suffer in a way that glorifies Him? And here's what I want you to think about as we work through the end of chapter 4. That God is glorified in our suffering 
when we trust Him completely. Now, there's some things here that we can't get away from, right? It's not say, we're not saying that God is glorified if we suffer. No, God is glorified when we suffer. We're going to suffer. And we glorify Him when we trust Him completely. And the very first reality that we come to in the word here is that trials are going to come. So what do we do when they do come? Part of a Christian's preparedness for suffering begins with the reality that it's coming. You have to know that you're going to walk through tough times. You have to understand that trials are coming, that storms are coming. And he begins in verse 12 to tell us that. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You heard me say at the very beginning of First Peter when we started that many refer to this as a pastor's delight. And a lot of that is because you see the pastoral heart of Peter writing to his people. And this address of beloved is the same, like he's basically saying, dear friends, the people whom I love more than anything, don't be surprised when these trials come. He's urging them to be ready, to be prepared. Letting them know that the trials are coming. They're coming for those who follow Jesus. He's, he's not saying that if you follow Jesus, you're going to get away from him. He's like, no, beloved, when they come, you need to be ready and don't be surprised. Jesus told us that if they hated him, they're going to hate us if we love him. And you see, we've already referenced just two or three parts of Scripture where Jesus clearly and the Bible clearly does away with this modern gospel. So, beloved, do not be surprised at what kind of trial. He says a fiery trial. Something painful, something harsh, something extreme. But find comfort in what he says after that. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to what? To harm you? No. To test you. When the trials come, we need to trust in who God is and what God is doing. Because these trials are not for our harm. They are to test us. Remember last week we began to look at our time together by referencing James chapter 1, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Joy and trials? Yes, because at the end of the day, we know that God is good and that God is much greater and that God leads us sometimes into these to test our faith in order to produce steadfastness. In other words, he wants us to learn to trust completely in him. And so Peter is telling these brothers and sisters who are going through this scattering, this dispersion, they've been pushed away because of their faith. They've, they've been forced to leave some of them, their families, their homes, their lands, all basically their known way of life. They, they're, and they're being constantly persecuted for trusting in Christ. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening, but instead rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. So don't be surprised, friends, when trials come. Just know that they are not there to harm you, but it's God testing you and testing your faith and instead of rejecting him or rebelling against him during these moments rejoice what rejoice rejoice in suffering yes because in the rejoicing we understand that 
Christ has already suffered in the flesh before us. Chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, here's the thing. That no matter amount the suffering you go through or I go through, the suffering that Christ has endured before us is greater. Now, that's not to downgrade your suffering. It's not to demean your suffering. But we need to understand the suffering of Christ was greater, which is why Hebrews can tell us that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us. Because the suffering of Christ, you might say, yeah, he got beat, he got murdered. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty great suffering, but that's not the suffering that we're talking about. The suffering we're talking about is the fact that Christ took all of your sin and all of your shame and he took it upon himself and he bore eternal punishment for that. He bore the wrath of God for us. He truly suffered. And so we can trust in him completely when the trials come because we know that he has been our predecessor in suffering. Jesus has already suffered in the flesh again, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Christian, you can suffer and you can face suffering because Jesus has suffered for sin to secure eternal salvation for his people. It's not your happiness or your joy or your comfort that gets you to salvation. It's the work of Christ bearing your sin, paying the price for your sin and mine that gives us salvation when we trust in him. And because he has already done the work for us, when we suffer for his name, we rejoice and we are glad and we are not put to shame. It goes on that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So, so brothers, friends, when you face trials, they're coming. You need to be ready for them. But, but here's the thing. Don't be ashamed in those moments. You, you trust in Him and you rest in Him. And in that moment, you rejoice and you're being glad because of the work of Christ. It just seems odd. If we asked everyone in here if you've gone through some form of suffering, everybody would say... Probably pretty quickly, yes. And it's looked different for everyone and everyone tastes suffering differently and everyone walks different paths. But nonetheless, you've probably faced some form of suffering. But as the people of God, as we trust in the grace of God, we are not to be shameful in those moments. It tells us to be rejoicing and to be glad. How in the world can I rejoice and be glad in suffering? Because I have eternity in view. The end of verse 13, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We're looking to the last day. We're looking and, and we're right on the brink of the Advent season. Where in the Old Testament, they longed for Christ's coming. They, they knew of the promise of the Messiah and they longed for his coming. And then he came and now he's gone again. And so as the New Testament covenant people, as the people of God, we're longing for his return. And we continue to press on and we continue to work and we continue to do these things because we know the end game. We know that Christ is victorious. We know that all is going to be made new. And so I can rejoice and I can be glad because Christ has been victorious over sin and death. And if I have trusted in Jesus, I have nothing to be afraid of. I have nothing to be ashamed of. It's not shameful to live for Christ. It's not shameful when, when others put you down. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you for my name's sake. It is good to be put down. It is good to be shamed. It is good. It is an honor to be 
put off because of the name of Christ. And we can rejoice and be glad because Christ has accomplished everything he came to accomplish. And we have that view in mind. The return of Christ, victorious and arrayed in splendor. It's a lot easier to have that view when we trust that the Bible is truly God's word. And we can hold tight to the promises of God that he will make all things new and that he will never let anything separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. See, living for Jesus and suffering for Jesus doesn't bring shame, but it brings blessing. Look what Peter says in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, isn't it interesting that the majority of what we see on Christian coffee mugs and t-shirts and we hear these pithy messages are all about being blessed if we care for ourselves and we, we protect ourselves. But he's saying here, like, no, you're blessed when you're insulted for the name of Christ. The redeemed of the Lord receive great blessing when we're persecuted for the name. So it's not blessing to flee from those things. It's not a blessing to be removed from those things. It's a blessing to be in the midst of those things because we learn in those moments and in those times to lean more into Christ. And as we seek Him, that's where the joy comes from. come across this quote this week. It's an old Puritan, possibly one you've never heard of. I had never heard of him. He said this. His name is Joseph Church. He says, Sufferings are but little chips of the cross. Think about that. Christ, the God-man, Forfeits glory to come to earth. Taking on human flesh. Born in the likeness of men. And at the moment of his death, he takes all of the sin for all of his people for all of eternity. And God turns his back and he unleashes holy wrath on that sin. We all hear of the terrible nature of hell and all the many things that go along with that. But the greatest pain of hell is just the absence of God's grace. The common grace that we see every day. And if God is willing to unleash that wrath on one person's sin. Imagine the terror and the pain and the suffering that Christ underwent on the cross. And you have this Puritan writing during unbearable times. And he says, sufferings are but little chips of the cross. It's very much the same idea that we see Paul writing in Philippians where he says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He was at the end of his life. He was at the end of his ministry when he had accomplished everything God had, he thought God had possibly set before him. And he's like, I'm in prison. I'm possibly going to die. I know that my end is coming. For me to die would be absolute gain, but yet I have a feeling God is going to leave me here a little longer to continue doing this work. And I am okay with that because for me to live is Christ. See, the people of God are willing to suffer for the name of God because of the worth in knowing God and being known by Him. 
We need to know that the trials are coming. And we need to be prepared for them to come by understanding that Christ is greater. That there is nothing you can do to, uh, to achieve some like status of joy. There is no amount of things you can buy, no amount of money you can amass, no amount of job that you can achieve that's going to bring you lasting joy. There is nothing that is going to allow you to escape the trials of life and find satisfaction in the trials of life than knowing God and being known by Him. The suffering's coming. How do we glorify God in that? How do I glorify God when the trials of life come? By trusting in Him alone. So what do we know? We know that every true follower of Jesus, that is, those who have confessed Christ as Lord, have believed Him in their heart, they have believed that God sent Jesus to be the Redeemer of our souls. We have surrendered completely ourselves to Him. For every true follower of Jesus, we will suffer for the name. We'll all suffer differently, but we're going to face suffering. For everyone who hasn't trusted Christ, you're going to face suffering. That's just one of the effects of sin. Pain. Suffering. Brokenness. But for the people of God, as we suffer for the name, we can do so by trusting in Him and trusting that we are doing all of this under the wisdom and the grace of of God Almighty. So you need to find comfort in knowing that there's nothing that you're going to go through or there's nothing you have gone through or nothing you may be currently going through that God is unaware of. He knows. And so we begin to understand that with each trial, God is purifying His beloved. And knowing this greatly allows us to cling closely to the truth that Jesus is our one, true, only foundation. Again, you might find like some temporary joy in a friend or a family member or a job, a promotion, money, technology, sports a hobby. But eventually those things will fade. Your one true foundation must be in Christ. And see, what we have, we have a lot of people who say that they are Christians, but Jesus is not truly their foundation. Like we can say with our mouths that Jesus is all to us, but our lives clearly reveal that he's not. And the Bible tells us that we will know by the fruit. So suffering's coming. Look at what he says in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, don't suffer as a sinner without Christ. Don't suffer as one who is rebellious to God. There's no hope in that life. And I know you may be like, well, listen. I'm not murdering anybody. I'm not stealing from anybody. I'm not a meddler. And I don't really do much evil. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, you do. Yeah, I do. See, these are just examples of a much greater problem, and that's the problem of sin in our lives. Romans 3 tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin, Romans 6, is death. Instead of rebelling against God and suffering with absolutely no hope, trust in Jesus. Trust in Christ, He is the only hope. 
Don't be afraid to take up your cross and follow him. I, I mean, I understand the objections. Like, I don't want to trust Jesus because I don't want to have to get up and go to church every Sunday. I don't want to trust Jesus because I'm going to have to give up these friends or, or give up this action. I'm not going to be able to endure and, and get to be a part of this sin. And I'm telling you today, that's exactly right. But when you trust Christ, you know what? You don't want to be a part of those things anymore. You're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You have been crucified with Christ, and it will no longer be you who lives, but it's Christ who lives in you. And in that life, you want to live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for you. See, you can continue to try to do it your own way, But in the end, all worldly offerings are going to fail you in the greatest storms of life. Like when true suffering, I'm not I'm talking about like, you know, somebody dislikes you. Like that might be a little, I'm talking like real, real suffering. Whether it be external physical suffering, spiritual surf, suffering, emotional suffering, mental sur- suffering, whatever, when, when, when like things get real. You think your job's going to make you happy? You think people are going to make you happy? You think your sports teams are going to make you happy? Definitely not. The only joy you're going to have is Jesus. Because he doesn't fail. He's not going to fail you when all hell breaks loose in your life. When you get that unwanted or unprepared for diagnosis, worldly things are not going to help you. When you lose your job unexpectedly, worldly things are not going to help you. When people turn their backs on you because you're trying to pursue Jesus, He will help you. When your world falls apart and all you have is Christ, you will realize then that he is all you need. See, and because God is good, and because God saves his people from sin, those who trust in him can live boldly for him. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... You see the difference, right? Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer as a meddler. In other words, don't let any of you suffer as a sinner without Christ. Instead, verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. but Let him glorify God in that name. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed to carry the name of Christ. Don't be ashamed for people to look at you as Insane because you believe Jesus and you believe the Bible. I know we live in a culture where this is completely. It's ludicrous to believe that there is a God and that there is a God who has given us his word and that it is inerrant, inspired, infallible and sufficient. We are lunatics for believing in such a sovereign God. But when others revile you and persecute you, Jesus says, be blessed. If you will, hold your Peter and your, your finger in 1 Peter 5 and flip over to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. We'll start in verse 34. Right before that, Jesus has told his disciples of his death and his resurrection. In verse 34, he then turns to the crowd. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There are a lot of us who will associate ourselves with Christ in this church, who have never truly surrendered ourselves to him and his salvation. And we do everything we can to grasp at the world and what the world has to offer. All the while forfeiting our soul. But the one who has been truly saved by Christ is not ashamed of him and his words. You boldly proclaim him and his words. You're not ashamed of when others revile you. You're not put down when others put you down because of Christ. You rejoice and you are glad. And I don't know, maybe you're here and you're just like, you know, what's the... How, I get it, but how do I know if I'm truly saved or not? How do I truly know if I... Is your life different? Are your thoughts different? Are you still wanting to be a part of things that your unsaved self would be a part of? Are you seeking holiness? Are you pursuing godliness? Are you given over to a debased mind? Is filth and corruption still within your heart? Do you still laugh at the same jokes? Do you still enjoy being around the same environment? If your life has not been radically changed, then maybe you've never actually received Christ. You've just associated yourself with Him. And you need to repent. And you need to turn to Christ. Because you are forfeiting your soul. And you need to seek Him while He may be found. You know, there's this realization in Scripture that if we are not pursuing Christ in godliness, if we continue to rebel against Him, God actually begins to remove His common grace from us. He begins to give us over to more and more passions of the flesh. This is not in my notes, and this is completely unscripted, but flip over to Romans chapter 1 really quickly. I just, I really feel like we need to see this. We need to see this clearly, because we live in a day where it's easy to claim Christ and think that we're fooling the masses, right? And in many cases we are, right? But, but, but there is no fooling God. And there is coming a day when you will stand before Him and, and you need to see this, that God will give you over if you continue to rebel against Him. And yes, it is rebellion against Him when you say that you love Jesus, but you're not, you've not surrendered yourself to Him. That's rebellion, and in some cases, one of the worst kinds. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Let's go back to 16. Let's do 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And here's where it gets real. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, who's he talking about? Everybody. Because he just clearly said, it doesn't matter if you've heard the gospel clearly preached about Jesus from the mouth. That is not an excuse because we have seen his divine nature, his eternal power, his invisible attributes clearly in the creation of the world. So we are all without excuse. And although though we know God, because we can perceive Him, even if we haven't heard of Him, do not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming, verse 22, to be wise, they became fools. And check this. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, we have made everything else God to us except the eternal God Himself. And what happens? Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And he goes on. And it gets a little worse and a little worse and a little worse as he progresses through the next several verses. So when we constantly rebel against God, He gives us up. And that common grace that we receive every day is slowly pulled away. So if you're here and you're trying to play some kind of game, you might want to wrap that up before it's too late. Now, back to suffering. Why is it so important to trust Jesus and Jesus alone in times of sorrow and suffering? Because when judgment comes, your only hope is in the finished work of Jesus. Look at verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The judgment he's talking about in verse 17 is not eternal judgment. This is not punitive penal judgment. This is not judgment um, in terms of salvation. But what he's actually referring to is for the people of God, we need to note that, for, for those who have trusted in Christ, the household of God, that's what he says in verse 17, what he's referring to here is the purification of our souls, the testing of our faith that produces genuineness, that produces steadfastness. In, in these moments, these fiery trials, these, these testing moments, the people of God rest in God because we understand it's him working to refine us. As gold would be refined by fire, so are the people of God refined by the work of God. And maybe you want to step back and be like, but how could a loving God do such a thing? Flip to Hebrews chapter 12. That would be slightly to the left. Hebrews chapter 12. Starting in, I have starting in verse 3, but I want to back up to verse 1 so you can understand what he's saying. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, now, why is he saying that? 
Chapter 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith, he's talking about the faith of those who had trusted in God regardless of the circumstances of life. They trusted in God before anything. And so he gets into verse 12 and he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those saints who have gone before us, who trusted God, who lived by faith, they have gone before us, they have died, they are in heaven, and we are surrounded then by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us, who are living, who are still proclaiming Christ, who also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, listen to this closely, okay, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you get that? We look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despising shame. So then, verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Did you catch that? Consider then Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He suffered greatly. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Out of love, the Lord disciplines his people. Out of love, the Lord purifies his people. Discipline is a necessary act of both love and grace from the Father. And he adds in verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What will happen to those who continue to rebel against God, who never trust in the gospel of God? In other words, what he's saying is if God put those he loves through such fiery trials, imagine then the true judgment for those who rebel against God. Every one of us will stand before God and give an account for our lives. And for those who don't trust in God, he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. And that's not the end of your story. That's the beginning of your eternity spent, separated from the love and the grace of God in hell. And maybe you're like, wait a minute, you're supposed to be giving me hope. Here's the hope. For those who do love God, who trust in the saving work of God. Our punishment has already been paid. 318, for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. God disciplines those whom he loves in order to purify us and to prepare us for the journey that is set before us. Longing for him, looking to him, Knowing that we will face trials of various kinds. But we rejoice because the end has already been promised. 
There's another Puritan pastor I've come across this week. His name is John Arrowsmith, and this is what he said concerning suffering. He says, There is as much difference between the sufferings of the saints and those of the ungodly as there is between the cords with which an executioner pinions a condemned malefactor and the bandage wherewith a tender surgeon binds his patient. So the suffering to the sinner is death. But suffering to the saint is healing. Now, what we need to know, especially as the people of God, is that when it comes to suffering for Christ, is this, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You trust God alone. You see, all are going to suffer. The Christian has hope in Christ and his work. The non-Christian does not have that hope yet. But it is there. And it is only possible to suffer in a God-glorifying way when you trust in God's sovereign faithfulness. If you have a weak understanding of Scripture, you have a weak knowledge of God and His Word, then when the trials of life come, you are going to have a very shatterable faith. We desperately need the foundation of grace. See, because all are going to suffer. Some are going to suffer for Christ and His name. Some are going to suffer for just the result of pure sinful rebellion against God. And for you, I want to tell you that the love of Christ covers sin. There is nothing you've done. There is nothing you're doing. There's nothing you ever will do if you trust in Christ that he cannot save you from. That's why he endured the greatest hostility. To set us free from the bonds of sin and shame. So trust him. Seek after him. And for you, Christian, who are here and you've just kind of been walking ho-hum throughout life, you, you really do believe Jesus, but your life really doesn't reflect it much yet and you're struggling to, to, to not be ashamed in pursuing Him and you haven't quite got to the point where you want to pursue holiness and godliness above all else. It's time to get moving. Time is running out. Every breath we take, each and every one of us is closer to meeting God face to face. Our purpose in being here is to do God's work, God's way for God's glory. So press on. Press on for His glory. And know that in that you will receive your greatest joy. Let's pray. Our Father... Simply, will you convict us of the sin in our life? Will you bring conviction of our need to rest and to trust in you? For those who have not, would you save them today, Father? And God, for those who are just struggling to walk the Christian life day by day, would you renew within them the joy of your salvation? for the glory of your name and the good of your people. We pray. Amen.